When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast contains explicit language. He has a lot of great ideas. He's not a stupid man. He's worth $9 billion. I feel like our country is going down the drain. He's actually a very intelligent man who cares deeply about America. There is no question that this is the person who will go to Washington, D.C. and be able to absolutely turn the place around. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who calls himself the king of illegal immigration, Donald Trump. And I'm the Prince of Punditry, Jacob Weisberg. So you know Michael Kinsley's famous definition of a gaffe? It's when a politician accidentally tells the truth. And that's just what Hillary Clinton did on Friday at a fundraiser in Manhattan. She said that half of Trump's supporters are just people who are frustrated about the economy and with the government who deserve our help and sympathy. And she said that the other half represent a basket of deplorables. It was admittedly a weird phrase to describe people she said hold views that are racist, sexist, homophobic, and so on. I think she might have been reaching for the more familiar idiom, a parade of horribles. Or maybe she was thinking about one of my kids' favorite movies, The Incredibles. Anyhow, Clinton regretted saying it, at least the half part. And politically, it was a dumb thing to say. But it wasn't inaccurate. To the contrary, about half of Trump supporters do hold bigoted opinions. Jamel Bowie went into this in a piece in Slate yesterday. In one survey, he writes, two-thirds of Republicans with a favorable opinion of Donald Trump said that Obama is a Muslim and 59% said he wasn't born in the United States. There was also a Reuters survey in June about the racial attitudes of Clinton, Trump, Cruz, and Kasich supporters. Nearly 50% of Trump supporters said blacks were more violent than whites and that blacks were more criminal than whites. More than 40% said that blacks were more rude than whites, and more than 30% said that blacks were lazier than whites. That weave on Trump's head? It's worse than a basket of deplorables. It's a nest of despicables or a lodge of detestables. My producer is asking me to please stop now. My guest today has been following the story of the policy shop Trump set up in Washington. He didn't pay much attention to the policies it produced, and he didn't pay people who worked there, so they quit. I'll be back with Josh Rogan of The Washington Post right after we do the tweets. Wow, Hillary Clinton was so insulting to my supporters. Millions 
of amazing, hardworking people. I think it will cost her at the polls. While Hillary said horrible things about my supporters, and while many of her supporters will never vote for me, I still respect them all. Really sad that Republicans would allow themselves to be used in a Clinton ad. Lindsey Graham, Romney, Flake, Sass, Supreme Court. Remember, CNN is unwatchable. Their news on me is fiction. They are a disgrace to the broadcasting industry and an arm of the Clinton campaign. Henry McMaster, Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina, who endorsed me, beat failed CNN announcer Bakari Sellers so badly. Funny. The documentary of me that CNN just aired is a total waste of time. I don't even know many of the people who spoke about me. A joke. My guest today is Josh Rogan. He's a columnist for The Washington Post, and he wrote the piece Inside the Collapse of Trump's D.C. Policy Shop. Josh, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. So uh, let's start at the beginning. When and why did Donald Trump set up a policy shop, by which you mean a a place that develops ideas about policy for him to use in the campaign? Why did he set one up in Washington? Sure. Let me take you back to spring, April to be exact, when the Trump campaign realized it was in a uh, heated battle with several other Republican campaigns that they thought at the time was going to last through the convention. And they were preparing and arming themselves for this battle. And part of that was securing the support of D.C. policy wonks, former officials and experts, anybody they could find, really. And they were late to the game on this because most of your standard D.C. establishment people, first of all, wanted nothing to do with Trump. And second of all, had signed on to the campaigns of Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, you name it. So when they finally got around to doing this, they basically took anybody and everybody who would sign up. And this was sort of a mishmash of people who were left over, who didn't get into the other campaigns, people, some people who really just believed that Trump was the best candidate. And uh, they set it up in D.C., and they put it under the uh, supervision of Rick Dearborn. And Rick Dearborn is a man who's the chief of staff for Senator Jeff Sessions, who was the, one of the first and most prominent sitting GOP lawmakers to actually come out and enthusiastically support Donald Trump. Uh, so they went about setting up the shop. They rented some office space in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, some people showed up every day, like a nine to five. Some people were phoning it in. Some people were teleworking. Some people were working part-time where they kept other jobs. And they just started the process of what these campaign policy shops do, just churning out policy papers, setting up surrogates to write op-eds for wherever they could get them placed, trying to come up with ideas for how Trump could do things on policy, foreign policy, domestic policy, you name it, right? But the first thing that happened was all of these people realized that the Trump campaign was not like any other campaign, on, especially when it comes to the policy. And what they ended up having to do was follow the candidate. And every time Trump would utter something, a bunch of people in the policy shop would run around and try to figure out the policy that makes it make sense. 
So he he would say say one of these things about building the wall or immigration or trade, and they would carefully develop policies to support those ideas. They would publish detailed white papers. And then, of course, the campaign would publish those white papers, and those would become Trump's coherent, consistent policies, right? Yeah, well, that was sort of the idea on paper, but it didn't really play <laughs> out that way for a couple of, of reasons. One is that Trump... The Trump campaign in New York never really took this D.C. policy shop very seriously. They loved having them do all this grunt work that needed to be done, especially when it came to the time of the Republican National Convention. There was a ton of grunt work, and that's when the policy shop was really kicked into high gear. But always in New York, they always had other ideas for what Trump should say and do, and they never, never re- their whole theory of the case is that if you're going to vote for Donald Trump, you don't really care about policy in the first place. And so they weren't really worried about it too much. And whenever something big happened, like Trump would announce a ban on Muslims or one of these things. That didn't come from the D.C. shop. That all came from the New York headquarters. And those people were getting paid, and those people were close to Trump, so those people really had all the power. And then the D.C. people were sort of left to figure out where they fit in into this sort of mess. Well, you say the people in New York were getting paid, so he was hiring people in D.C. and they weren't getting paid? Yeah, so this is what what eventually happened is that, you know, according to several of the people who used to work for this D.C. policy shop, they were under the impression they were going to get paid at some point, you know. <laughs> most most jobs work that way. I mean, it's not a full, right? I mean, this is, these are full-time jobs. These are people who need to work for a living. These are not like, this isn't like Sheldon Adelson. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the whole theory was that the Trump campaign was supposed to be this small operation that was pinching pennies and wasn't going to build this huge infrastructure. At the same time, a lot of these people were devoting their full-time careers to this, and they were told that some money was coming. And, and over time, they sort of realized that this was never, ever going to happen. And there were campaign leadership changes at the top. When Paul Manafort took over, he said he wasn't going to take a paycheck. Of course, Paul Manafort didn't need the money. And after the convention, people started to look around in this D.C. shop and say, okay, are we getting these checks or not? And when they figured out that they weren't, many of them jumped ship. So did Trump use any of the policies? I mean, when you go to his website, there aren't really any policies there, as people pointed out. But I mean, did he make any use of any of the stuff they came up with? Yeah, it's unclear that what they were producing had any real effect on the direction of the Trump campaign. Uh, Some of the stuff did somehow seep in to the speeches. A lot of the lists of experts that they built, they built this huge National Security Advisory Committee, an economic advisory team. The Trump campaign would announce these teams full of all of these people like they were really advising Trump, but they weren't actually advising Trump. They would meet with him once or not at all. So they used the products, but not in the wet, not for real policy, just to sort of pretend that they had had this robust policy depth that they never really, really cared about. So they weren't really using the policies except here and there. They weren't paying the people who were working on them who expected to get paid. And not surprisingly, according to your story, people quit. Well, that's exactly right. And not, and then some other things happened uh, along the way. Uh, a couple of the people managed to get pay. There's this guy named Waleed Farris, who is the head of sort of the Middle East brain trust inside the Trump campaign, and he somehow managed to get like $13,000 a month. Trump, Trump has a Muslim advisor. Is he? It sounds like a Muslim name. Is that a, is that, does Trump have a He's Muslim advisor? He's actually a advice? Christian Arab, but he organized Muslims for Trump. It was a sort of a, an astroturf organization that pretended that Trump had big support among Muslims. The head of Muslims uh, for Trump is not a Muslim. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, somehow some people managed to get paid, but most of them didn't. And, so, and for that reason, a lot of them decided eventually to just quit. And does this it no longer exist? I mean, did it actually just fold up and go away? No, it still exists. So you still have this guy, Rick Dearborn, who's also he's getting paid, but is also getting a Senate salary. You've got a guy named John Mashburn, who's a very sort of famous conservative 
staffer who used to be the chief of staff for Senator Tom Tillis. You've got their assistants. You've got another guy named Joseph Schmitz, who was Pentagon Inspector General until he resigned under accusation of corruption. And he's still running something called a surrogate war room. So there, there are some people who either didn't expect to get paid or didn't, it didn't bother them that they weren't getting paid. So it's still going on. But as the campaign acknowledged to me in my article, most of the stuff has just moved to New York. After the convention, after the platform was done, after all that stuff, they really didn't think they really needed this anymore. They decided to just call it a success, but no matter whether it was or not, and just move a couple people to New York, and, and that's that. Meanwhile, it would actually be useful to have some people who are developing policies that Donald Trump could put up on his website that would support these things, he, he says. But he doesn't seem to want to do that at all with the D.C. shop or the New York shop or anybody else. Yeah, I mean, they, they wrapped up the nomination earlier than they thought, so they didn't really have to uh, care whether or not they were securing Republican experts as part of their campaign, because the Republican experts really had nowhere else to go. And after the convention, they decided that policy wasn't really the reason that people are going to vote for Trump in the first place, so they weren't going to really put a lot of meat on the bones, right? And, uh, you know, in, in, in the sense, it just withered away. It wasn't a conscious decision to say, we don't care about policy. It's just that they didn't care about it, so it atrophied. So let's think the unthinkable here for a minute. If Donald Trump won the election, where would his policies come from? I mean, if when Bill Clinton was elected in 1992 or when Barack Obama was elected in 2008 or when George Bush was elected in 2000, they had a set of policies that people had been working on for a year or more that then formed the basis of what they did in their first year in office. Where is Trump yeah, going to get that? It's interesting because uh, in the skeleton staff in New York is this guy named Stephen Miller who writes the speeches and travels with the candidate. He talks to his children about it a lot, especially Jared Kushner. But, you know, the real action right now in Trump land is in the transition team, right? This is Chris Christie's shop, which is actually a block from the White House in offices provided by you and me, the taxpayer. And they're building a whole new operation. That operation has money. And some, you know, very well-established Republicans are part of it, including former Intelligence Chairman Mike Rogers and uh, some people from Bob Corker's staff. So if you really wanted to think forward to if Trump wins, who's going to do what and who's going to have say, you would have to look at that transition office, which is just getting started now. Is it, and is there a fable here about Trump's management or about Trump as a businessman? I mean, it sounded sort of like a classic, get a bunch of people to do stuff for you, then decide afterwards if and when you want to pay them. Right. Well, it sort of fits the narrative that Trump doesn't pay his contractors, right? That he, he gets people to do work for him and then he doesn't, he stiffs them if you wanted to look at it that way. And then, you know, it's up to them to sort of challenge them. Of course, they have no recourse. Most of these people didn't have contracts, so they just have to take it on the chin. You know, another way to look at it is it's just a mess, just like most things in the Trump campaign are a mess. They're only thinking about a week ahead. And, you know, beyond that, they'll just figure it out. They never expected to get this far. So it sort of confirms everything you would think about the Trump campaign just unfortunately comes at the expense of these sort of innocent staffers who didn't know what they were getting into. It doesn't sound like that high degree of difficulty. I mean, get some Washington wonks work on, to work on different aspects of policy and help uh, have them help you figure out details about things you're saying. I mean, it's if you if you can't manage that, I kind of wonder what can you manage. Well, yeah. Well, it's you know, it's it's partially that. I mean, I think everybody who works on a presidential campaign, and I've talked to 
people who worked for the Romney campaign, people who worked for the McCain campaign, when I was researching this article, they, it's kind of always a mess, and it's kind of always you enter at your own risk. Nobody's promised jobs. Nobody's promised that the policy papers that you're going to write are going to come out of the mouth of the candidate the next time he talks about immigration or uh, Syria or whatever. But this is a particularly dysfunctional group, and this is a particularly messed up example. So, you know, these are professionals and all they wanted was the basic understanding that their that their time wouldn't be abused, that their work would contribute to something, and that promises made to them would be honored. And the, and the Trump campaign was 0 for 3 in that regard. And having looked at this, how would you describe Trump's relationship to policy? All right, I mean, maybe he didn't want this group of people. He didn't want people in Washington do it, doing it. But is it simply that he doesn't have any interest in policy, or does he just want to do it all himself? Yeah, I mean, when I, when I talk to the people close to Trump in the New York office, they, they always say the same thing. They say, you know, this is not who Trump is. This is not what our campaign is. We're running against the establishment. Sure, we had these people here because they served a function for a time, but, you know, we don't believe that anyone goes into the voting booth and says, oh, like, what that five-page memo on uh, tax subsidies, that was really great. That's why I'm going to vote for this guy. So they just made this sort of broad calculation, which is not necessarily a wrong calculation, right, that it just didn't matter to win. And if he wins, they'll figure it out later. And, you know, again, you could make an argument for that, but it's still just sort of basically dysfunctional and basically disrespectful to those people who weren't told that when they signed on. But also, if you spend enough time focusing on an issue and trying to understand it to write a five-page memo, you're by definition part of the establishment. I mean, you can have policy and it be anti-establishment policy, presumably. Well, yeah, and that's what's so interesting, because people think of the Republican policy establishment as a monolith, but in fact, there's a broad range of uh, ideas. And a lot of the people who had signed up for the Trump policy team were from sort of the anti-establishment wing of the Republican policy world. You had people who used to work for Michelle Bachman, Ben Carson, Mike Huckabee, Herman Cain, right? These are the people who are not at the cool kids table at the normal Republican policy lunch and uh, they were very excited, and they thought this was their opportunity to get their views and their ideas into the, a campaign that was taking over the Republican movement. And that's why they signed on, and that's why they were so excited about it. But in the end, uh, Trump disregarded them, and uh, they were burned. Uh, well, it's a great story, Josh, and thanks for joining me on the show today. Anytime. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. He gets paid in a timely fashion, I swear. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. He doesn't think he needs policy to run the show. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. He's been under the impression that he would get paid for working here. Ha! And of course, I only take policy advice from John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. And one more thing. If you love podcasts, you are not going to want to miss Now Hear This a really big podcasting festival coming to the Los Angeles area in October. Trumpcast is going to be there. We're going to do a live show, our first live show. I hope it's our last live show. You can see Trumpcast live on stage and more shows you love like The Moth, Criminal, Memory Palace. There are going to be more than 30 great podcasts live on six stages. It's a weekend full of laughs, storytelling, and your favorite hosts up close. Tickets are on sale now for Now Hear This, October 28th to the 30th in Anaheim, California, just a short ride from Los Angeles. You can get tickets and see the whole lineup at nowhearthisfest.com. 
I'm Jacob Weisberg, and I plan to close the Trumpcast office on November 8th. Thanks for listening. Hillary Clinton obviously has some health issues, but I would like to voice my concern and say, Hillary, get better. I need you out on the trail. You're doing a phenomenal job screwing up your campaign and making horrible mistakes.